Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Robert Priest, the author of The Gospel According to Renan, Reading, Writing, and Religion in 19th Century France. And the book was... and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Robert Priest, the author of The Gospel According to Renan, Reading, Writing, and Religion in 19th Century France, and the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Hi there, Rob. Hi, Roxanne. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, uh, I guess, uh, well, I'm a lecturer in European history at uh, Royal Holloway University of London at the moment. Um, I don't really have some great story of burgeoning Francophilia. I don't think I even studied French at school past about 14. I had to sort of learn it all again as an adult, but uh, I didn't have, you know, some kind of great uh, experience I can remember. We went on holiday to France, uh, as people in England, by and large, do. But um, it wasn't. It wasn't really anything to do with that. It was simply that when I was a student, I think I just came away with the strong impression that that French history was was significantly more interesting than British history, which I guess was the obvious comparison. And, and particularly in the nineteenth century, it was just so much more exciting. The, the revolutions, the culture, everything else. And I suppose on a more serious note, the it seemed to have attracted so many of the best historians. All the, the historians that I was interested in uh, when I was an undergraduate, Robert Danton, Roger Chartier, Foucault, Michel de Certeau, all, all seemed to be students of 18th and 19th century French history in one way or another. And so that got me interested. And, and I guess like any story, there's a there's an inspirational teacher as well, which was Rebecca Spang, who taught me as an mm. undergraduate, who really communicated her passion for France. So it was really the French history more than France, which 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 uh, enraptured me, I guess. So this book, Rob, is a is a really multifaceted history of another very important book, Ernest Renan's Vie de Jésus, or Life of Jesus, published mm. in 1863. How did you get interested in working on this text and its complex history? Uh, well, uh, I read it as an undergraduate for the first time for a big kind of 19th century survey course. And it was in the week, which I think was called something like secularization question mark. And, uh, I guess from the little I read of the introduction of it before we did the reading for the class, I was kind of expecting Richard Dawkins or, or some kind of really strident assault on religion. And what surprised me even the first time I read it was that it just seemed way more complicated than that, more poetical, romantic, complex, didn't seem to be a kind of simplistic secular life of Jesus, which is what it is, um, a secular life of Jesus. And so it, it kind of stuck in my brain as being something which I needed to come back to. And then um, when I came to start a PhD on it, I think it was because it seemed to in some way provide a way into answering some of those lingering questions that I had about it um never really gone away the first I guess was how was it that this book which was so immensely controversial had become so forgotten because I, I don't know how many of our, our listeners will have will have heard of Renan's life of Jesus but it's not especially well read today mm-hmm. um whereas the novels of, of Flaubert or the paintings of Manet or, or the other kind of products that we associate with Second Empire Paris still very much are um, widely known and widely read. Um, and the other was it, it posed a kind of methodological problem for me, which was 
the fact that Life of Jesus was so incredibly controversial um, and so well-selling seemed to me to provide an opportunity to write a history of an intellectual text um, that was also a kind of more popular history of its impact on uh, French culture, a, a kind of way of writing about how an intellectual text was read, um, mm -hmm. and a way of kind of thinking about the relationship between readers in a text it, 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 in a way that wasn't to do with a novel, if you like. So it just seemed to be a very unique book, and it was it was as popular as a novel, and yet very much not a novel, um, and therefore seemed to pose a huge number of interesting questions. Well, and I'm going to want to come back to sort of asking about all these different aspects of the of the text that you explore in the book. But, but before we do, I'm sure that many, most of our listeners are familiar with Renan, but I wonder if you might give us a bit of an overview. I mean, you have a whole chapter that really focuses on his sort of the biography of Renan with respect to the text, but could you just kind of situate him for us as a figure? Yeah, sure. Um, so he was born to a very humble family in Brittany in a little fishing town called, called Tréguier. And his dad was a fisherman, in fact, who, who committed suicide uh, when, when, when Ernest was very young. Um, and he was a very promising, bright young student who um, took the roots of many bright young people from modest backgrounds in the 19th century, which was uh, social mobility via um, the church. Uh, so he, he entered into a, a seminary first in Brittany and then at the end of the 1830s went up um, to study to be a priest at the seminary of Saint-Sulpice in Paris, which was one of the best known um, French seminaries, indeed Catholic mm -hmm. seminaries in the world. And in mid-1840s, 1844, 1845, he started in some sense to lose his Catholic faith, um, in part due to his intense study of religious texts, um, in part due to the kind of intellectual influences that, that he was receiving. Um, and so in 1845, he dramatically deserted the seminary um, and stopped training to be a priest and entered onto a, a career as a secular academic, almost completely um, unsupported, basically dependent on a, on a monetary lifeline from his sister, who was a governess in Poland, uh, in Paris, and remarkably succeeded in becoming one of Europe's leading professors of uh, Semitic linguistics, which is to say he was a specialist in Hebrew um, and, and Hebrew philology. Um, and then he had this long um, and quite uh, remarkable career. He ascended to be the director of the Collège de France, which is one of the most one of the top positions in French academia. Mm -hmm. uh, and he published books on mm, the history of Christianity, the history of Judaism, also political essays, most famously uh, "What Is a Nation," which is still very widely read today, mm -hmm. as well as kind of academic works of of uh, Hebrew. Um, and Semitic linguistics. Um, so it's kind of a spectacular ascent, if you like, um, and, and a very, very long and illustrious career. So in the first chapter of the book, Rob, you look at Renan as both a product of the 19th century context that you're exploring and an exceptional figure. And of course, this career you've just mapped out sort of underlines that idea of what was exceptional about him. Mm. Could you just say a little bit more about your analysis along these lines? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, he's very much a, a product of that sort of persistent conflict in the 19th century or persistent tension in France in the 19th century between the kind of pull of Catholicism and of France's kind of Catholic heritage. Um, and on the other hand, the kind of attraction of, of science, of criticism, and of kind of secular ways of of doing politics and and ideas and in that, I mean just to take that sense first in that sense he's kind of unique or or at least distinctive in the sense that he seems to want to reconcile both of those influences often rather than put those in opposition. One of the reasons I think that he comes to write a life of Jesus, for example, is that he is absolutely fixated on and passionate about the figure of Jesus, but he can't really um, cling to his his childhood, uh, his kind of um, mother religion, if you like, of Catholicism. So he's distinctive in that sense. Um, he's distinctive as well, uh, typical and distinctive at the same time, in that he reads very widely in 
in the kind of uh, great historians and, and philosophers of the period, people like uh, Cousin, Victor Cousin, uh, Michelet, uh, Augustin Thierry. And yet he doesn't want to write, if you like, secular history. He wants to write the history of religions. Could you give us a sense, Rob, of, well, could you give us an overview of this book, Vie de Jésus, and then maybe also place it within his Renan's broader body of work? You know, what is it? Is it history, biography, mm. work of theology? If you could just give us a sketch of the book and then maybe position it a little bit for us in terms of Renan's oeuvre. Sure. So um, the book itself um, begins with this sort of strident and, and, and very striking methodological introduction, which is, I think, quite a rare thing in an academic book. Um, he manages, to, he basically manages to demolish in, in that introduction many of what you might consider to be the kind of traditional pillars of, of the Catholic version of the life of Jesus one by one. Um, for example, saying that the Gospels were just historical texts like any others produced mm -hmm. in a specific and particular historical context. He says that, that Jesus was a man, um, not a kind of divine being who is not the son of God, but simply a, a man born in a particular Jewish context in the first century. He says that he did not perform miracles um, and that any kind of uh, he has a very long extended um, dissertation on miracles in the introduction where he, he outlines why he thinks that miracles are not admissible in any truthful historical account. And then the book proceeds from there basically in kind of two parts. The first is to kind of talk about Jesus's formation, the context that formed him, Renan's particular version of what first century Palestine was like and, and how we can kind of speculate about his childhood and his an emotional and intellectual formation. And then the second half of the book is is more about Jesus's adult life, Jesus's um, sermons and message and encounters with the authorities leading up to his trial and crucifixion, which Renan sees as a kind of purely historical event, not one, you know, there was no kind of gigantic thunderbolt crashing down when he was up on the, on the crucifix and mm. to discount many of those things, but a kind of inevitable legal procedure, if you like, that the Roman authorities took against the man who, who seemed to be prov provoking a lot of potential sedition and danger and who also, um, in Renan's view, I think somewhat foolishly um, if explicably refused to kind of back down in the face of incredible um, pressure and therefore inevitably ended up getting himself killed. So it's a, it's, it's a biography of Jesus that proceeds very much along straight biographical lines. It's also written in very fluid prose. It's not an academic dissertation about the life of Jesus. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things which distinguished it from, from other books in that, in that genre in the 19th century. And how that fits into his his broader body of work? Well, in by that point in 1863, um, Renan had had largely produced uh, his his main body of work had been um, his his general outline book on on the history of the Semitic languages that he published in the 1850s. So he'd kind of made his mark with with a with an academic work on on philology, and this was his first really popular foray into a uh, history um, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a publishable book scale and the um, popular writing, writing that was actually intended to have an audience beyond the academy. Um, and it was also going to be, and it, and it did indeed become, the first volume in a, in a bigger project, the history of the origins of Christianity that, that Renan then pursued across the following decades and which he followed then with, with the history of of Judaism. So it's within his, his broader body of work, it's really, if you like, his arrival on the scene in, in mm. very many ways, as well as his first departure from that more narrow philological type of scholarship. So, I mean, I have a sense, well, from reading the book, but also from what you're saying right now, of the uh, intellectual location of the book in, 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 in Renan's career, you, you also discuss in the in the first chapter of the book the ways that um, Renan's own experiences uh, shaped the kind of life of Jesus that he went on to write and, and publish in 1863, including this idea that, you know, he stopped believing in uh, 
um, the divine Jesus of Orthodox Catholicism somewhere in there between the late mm. 1830s and, and the publication of the book. Could you say a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, so it's always a difficult subject to talk about how an author's experience shaped their texts, of course, and mm-hmm. it's a bit of a minefield, and there's been a lot of psychologizing that has gone on um, with with Renan, and, and I've tried to tread a careful line in the book between acknowledging that without getting too much into it. I mean, we can talk, for example, about how his particular affection for Breton Catholicism and the kind of religion of his home region shapes the way that he writes about Galilean Christianity, which he, he or, or Galilean um, the Galilean people, which he wants to distinguish very much from 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 the people of Jerusalem and Judea in the book. And he sort of they're almost kind of quasi Bretons. They're people who have this kind of indigenous, earthy, natural religion, which is distant from the kind of dogmatic religion that you get in Jerusalem. And so it's all the kind of things that Renan likes about um, French Catholicism and none of the stuff that he doesn't like, for example. You also, I think, there's a there's an interesting um, gendered dimension, which, again... Uh, could be the subject of great speculation, but I think we can certainly say that there was uh, there was an enormous intellectual role for women in Renan's own life. Um, mm. His sister Henriette wasn't just a financial supporter of his, but also a great kind of intellectual companion. Um, and yet, nonetheless, he never really kind of acknowledged that she was anything more than an exception to her sex. So to Renan, kind of women are the repository of the true, good, um, honest and sincere Christianity. And so similarly in the book, Jesus is constantly surrounded by women and children. Women and children are seen as being the the kind of true conduits of Christianity. And Jesus himself is painted in in, in somewhat androgynous tones. Hmm. Um, Another thing we might think about is is the politics. Um, in the middle of the 19th century, there were various lives of Jesus which took Jesus in a particularly left-wing or socialist direction. Uh, people like Cabet, the utopian socialist, um, wrote about Jesus as being kind of the first of the proletarians and that you, know, you could analyse his miracles and see that they were often at, uh, directed at the disadvantaged in society. Or you had other people writing about primitive Christianity as the kind of first form of primitive communism. Um, Renan was very much shaped by his experience of, of 1848, the revolution of 1848 in particular, and he came out of that with a kind of distaste for socialism, to some extent a kind of distaste for democracy, and it kind of confirmed for him his very kind of 19th century liberal belief in the uh, in kind of the power of great individuals and the importance of liberty. And so Jesus in the book encapsulates many of Renan's political opinions that he developed during the course of his early life as well. So Jesus isn't a socialist. Instead, he's this kind of hero of the freedom of conscience, which is precisely, you might also say, what Mm. Renan himself views himself as being. Um, So all of these different strands from from Renan's early life kind of come together um, in the book itself, although, of course, it's always very difficult to draw direct connections between the two things. I do think it is it is possible and it is worth doing in this case. You refer, Rob, to to the hybridity of Vie de Jésus as a text. So what does this mean? And yeah, how are you thinking about the text as something that has all of these different kind of ways of intervening in terms of um, 19th century French history, culture, politics? Mm. Well, yeah, that's, I think hybridity is the word that I use and it's the word that I would use to describe it. Um, let's take, for example, the other big 19th century Life of Jesus that had been published, which had been published in Germany, um, The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by, by David Friedrich Strauss. This was a book which was basically a dense dissertation with thousands of footnotes that was pursued across hundreds of pages, which kind of went into great um, scholarly detail and examination of every single miracle from Jesus's life, which kind of blended Hegelian philosophy with kind of high critical theology. Renan's book was nothing like this. Mm. It was written in this kind of novelistic, uh, popular historical prose. And yet it also did seek to make 
scholarly contributions. So, mm. so Renan does have opinions on all of these different matters that people like Strauss have dealt with. He just encodes them more within the narrative. Um, and there are certain areas where, 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 um, Renan was particularly staking, um, particular claims about, about the life of Jesus in the history of the New Testament. For example, he was significantly more favorable to the fourth gospel, um, than any of the kind of, uh, highly critical German Protestant theologians and French Protestant theologians at the time were. And he, does openly acknowledge that in the introduction, but he also threads it through the whole narrative. If you read the book and you look carefully at the footnotes it does have, you see that he is much more dependent on the fourth gospel than many of his peers. Mm. So that's, you know, that's one example of the way in which it's, it's a very hybrid text. I think also, similarly, when we talk about the politics of the book, you can, it's often difficult to disentangle what is Renan's sincere historiographical conclusion and what is maybe a coded political dig. Mm. Uh, for example, when he talks about the trial of Jesus and he has this kind of um, benevolent figure of, of, of Pontius Pilate, you know, is this somehow a kind of coded messenger to, a coded message to France's own emperor, Napoleon III, who, who Renan kind of broadly collaborated with and supported and, and wanted to be indulgent towards him? particularly because at the time the book was published, I should mention that Renan had been suspended from his job by the government. You know, or was this just Renan's sincere conclusion from having carried out historical research um, into the New Testament and the life of Jesus? You know, there's a couple of examples there of, of the ways in which the book seems to be pointing in multiple directions at once. Mm-hmm. There's also a hybridity, I think, at a more basic level in um, what does he want Jesus to be? And this is where it gets very complex and and difficult to figure out exactly what Renan thought Jesus was, despite the fact he's written this whole very detailed life of Jesus, because he insists at the beginning that he's not divine. Then towards the end of the book, he says something along the lines of, if any, if ever in human history, a human has come close to touching divinity, it was Jesus. And, you know, all of these kind of, um, apostrophes that he makes during the book and all these kind of excessive passages where he kind of eulogizes Jesus as being this almost quasi-divine force sit very strangely with his, his, his claims that he's doing this kind of serious historical work, which is kind of, uh, confronting many of the dogmas and, and presuppositions of, of Catholicism. So there's lots of different sorts of hybridity in the book, I would say. Mm-hmm. So I want to move on now, Rob, to asking you some questions about what happens once the book appears. But before I do, I wanted to ask you to say something about the ad. And I I just really loved that moment in the book where you talk about the ad that the publisher takes out right before the book appears. I think it's about a week before the book appears. Um, Could you just tell a sort of brief version of that story and its significance? Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, basically, Renan was was an incredibly canny operator, and he he him and his publisher Michel Lévy, who was one of the most successful um, French publishers in the nineteenth century, they knew exactly what they were doing. I think it's fair to say. And so the book it came out on the twenty fourth of June, eighteen sixty three, as you as you've already said, and based and that was a Wednesday. And so the weekend before that Wednesday, there's this um, notice which is pa- placed in most of the major. Um, national French newspapers saying basically it's uh, it's completely false that that, that Renan has been um, told to make changes to the book. Um, <laughs> this book is going to appear exactly as the author conceived it and, and exactly as it was written in the Orient, which, by the way, isn't true. Um, and so basically the, the, they take out this advert saying... Uh, Renan has not made any changes when, of course, nobody had actually said that Renan had been forced to make changes. So they deliberately stir up this this sort of sus- suspicion that the government's been leaning on Renan, telling him to change the book, which wasn't true at all. Um, and and then they say something along the lines of, of how it would have been it would have been a profound mistake to have pro- prohibited the publishing of this book, as if that's ever been under discussion, which it hadn't. Nobody had ever been discussing whether it should be banned. So I mean, it's a pure piece of, of disingenuous um, genius. And so you know, the, that's just one of the the, the mechanisms Renan uses to make sure that his book is getting the publicity that he thinks it deserves. I really liked that moment because you know, the, so much of the book is about 
sort of addressing this question of why it was so controversial and the debates surrounding the book and the fact that that is that controversy is almost provoked in advance of its yeah. release is, is is really interesting to me was that a common uh not that specific tactic but that was that a common um feature of book publication in the 19th century that publishers would uh sort of stage these scandals and or at least provoke them uh yeah I, i'm not familiar with one along exactly the same lines but it was certainly very common for bits of the mass circulation newspapers in 19th century france to be not exactly what they seemed to be kind of um paid columns to be you know there'd been you know why is a particular play getting noticed in the theater column it's because the person organizing it has thrown some money to the paper Mm -hmm. or to kind of write as any advertorials almost if you like you know that was that was a very um well-known tactic that had, had, had been pioneered right in in the beginning of mass circulation newspapers in the in the 1830s and 40s so so by by making up an advert that wasn't an advert um, Levy, michel levy and renon were, were doing something which was um not especially um out of the ordinary although i think the particular character of it w- was 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 quite special um so yours is the first book, Rob, to really focus on the popular reception of the book in the 19th century. I mean, you do talk about how other scholars have maybe explored academic responses or, you know, some of the some of the press, uh, you know, reviews and responses, but that you're really interested in, in the reception of the book, especially, um, you know, among a wider audience, uh, a French public uh, in the 19th century. So what are the specific questions that you set about answering, um, you know, on this front? thinking about popular reception. Mm. How did you get at these questions? What sources did, did you draw on? And, and I guess, what, what did you come up with in, in response? Um, yeah, well, I guess one of the lingering questions, I mean, I knew that the book had, had sold in these extraordinary numbers in the hundreds of thousands, the mm. kind of numbers that you associate with someone like Emile Zola at the end of the century. So I knew that there was a big, broad readership out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the other canny things that, that Renan had done was to release a cheap popular edition of the book one year after the first edition of the book. It was very cheap for the time, one franc 25, which was, which put it in, in the reach of many people, not mm-hmm. everybody, of course. And, and this was also a time of burgeoning literacy. We're talking about a period when somewhere in the region of, let's say, 70% of the French population can read, and it would have been significantly higher in urban areas, for example. Mm-hmm. So I knew that there was this popular audience and I wanted to know, well, the first thing I had to examine, if you like, the kind of academic and, and print response. But once I'd done that, I wanted to know how much did, um, did if you like, ordinary readers, how much did their responses map onto those in, in the press? Um, and then I also had this this question, which in some ways is not an answerable question and maybe not a sensible question even to ask, but... There was a, a famous book called The Secularization of the European Mind by Owen Chadwick, um, which which said about Renan's life of Jesus, uh, who knows, maybe people read it and it changed their views about Christianity. And maybe one day we'll find out whether that was the case. But it's something like, you know, it's almost impossible to know. Um and of course, that's too big and in some ways too, too simplistic a question to answer. You know, did reading the book change people's minds? How could we ever really get at that? But I do think we can get closer to that than previous historians have imagined. And, and the main way that I went about this, apart from reading hundreds and hundreds of many incredibly tedious pamphlets that were written, some of whom were not at all written by clergy and established authors. There were hundreds of pamphlets published in response to Renan's book. Some of them were by um, cobblers or, or, or sort of um, printers or, or whoever else in the provinces. Uh, but the main new set of sources that I tried to use was was letters, um, particularly letters that were written to Renan um, in the aftermath of the publication of the book, uh, fan mail and hate mail, if you like. And there are some... <laughs> Um, three to four hundred, or someone else said, you know, they, I was basically kind of looking at the, at the internet trolls of the 1860s. <laughs> <laughs> and when some of them really are the internet trolls of the 1860s, they're in fact less polite, I think. Um, and there are somewhere in the region of, of three to four hundred letters that were, that were written to Renan, um, wow. which 
uh, stored at the Musée de la Vie Romantique um, in, in the north of Paris, which is a great museum as well that everybody should should visit. Um, and so, and some of, and I think uh, somewhere in the region of eighty or ninety of these letters, or eighty, sorry, eighty. There's about four hundred letters from the public, if you like. Um, and 80 or 90 letters from priests as well, which is a, a, a subject of a vein of particular interest, of course. Um, and so I wanted to try and use these letters knowing that I could never simplistically answer, you know, did the book change the way people think in a very straightforward way? But I wanted to see what we could do with these letters. And in terms of what you found out about the types of different readers, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, Cobbler wrote a pamphlet, but in terms of the letters and who who was writing to him, um, can you tell us a little bit more about who these people were? You know, were they, did, were, were you exploring the responses of Catholics, Protestants, and Jews in France? Um, were there sort of clear political differences between the uh, people responding to the book, men and women? You know, who were who these people writing to him? Um, yeah, well, um, certainly in, in the pamphlet and newspaper literature, you can break it down into Protestant, uh, Catholic views and political lines a bit. Um, in the kind of, in the manuscript literature that came in response, these letters to the author particularly, it's very difficult to draw, um, broad conclusions, mm. in part because sometimes the letters are so basic, they might be scrawled on, on one sheet of a piece of card or whatever, they don't necessarily leave their name or where they're from, although that in itself is something which is which tells us something because these are often letters which are very obviously from people who don't write letters very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can tell they're from a particular part of the social spectrum, um, or they're written in in, in slightly um, error laden French, um, or they're written on kind of uh, found materials, for example. So even though we don't know very much about the people who wrote those kind of letters. We we know that they're almost certainly not kind of, you know, bourgeois intellectuals. Um, so they're in, them, in themselves interesting. Um, one conclusion we can draw with some confidence, or, or, or that I've tried to draw with, with some confidence, is that of the letters of which we can d- determine uh, the gender, um, I think, I can't remember the exact figure, but something like a third are from women. Mm. Um, which is interesting because if in my entire analysis of the print and pamphlet literature, you very rarely hear a woman's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, some of the intellectual correspondence, you get people like Jour uh, Sand uh, or, or someone like that. But um, this is a kind of rare, rare opportunity to get to get the voices of, of some women, at least. Um, so a broad social spectrum, definitely. So in the introduction to the book, Rob, you refer to this sort of history of the book and publishing and some of these other kinds of things. And I just wondered if you could say a few words about how you see your own book as a as a contribution to those conversations and debates about the history of the book in, in 19th and early 20th century France. You know, what does it tell us about reading and writing and publishing specifically, do you think? Yeah, um well, I don't think I'm making any kind of great kind of Copernican revolution in that world, which is which is a really interesting and vibrant field, it must be mm-hmm. said. Um, I think the shift that, that my book hopefully um, helps to make is to looking at reading in a, in a broader sense um, than fiction, which has naturally been the the predominant focus a lot of a lot of the, the history mm-hmm. of readership and a lot of the history of, uh, or to some extent, the history of the book in the 19th century, in the sense that um, when readers respond to authors, with a few famous exceptions, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, for example, they're often responding to novelists. Novelists, poets often write the most popular works. And so hopefully this is a way of looking at reader response to a different sort of literature, using some of the tools um, that historians of, of reading in the 19th century have used. And I'm again, I don't want to claim that I'm the first to look at, at non fictive literature in that sense. But mm-hmm. there are scholars like uh, Judith Lianquin, who did an excellent study of the correspondence of, of Balzac and Eugène Sue, um, for example, who, whose work really inspired what I'm doing here. And the, what's interesting are both the similarities and the differences. So unlike the correspondence of novelists, at least the ones that, that, that Lianquin looks at, not so many of Renan's correspondents write to him with 
their manuscripts for a play or, or you know, their manuscripts for, for a novel or whatever, asking him to try and give them some kind of patronage. Um, by the same token, they are quite similar in the way that they sort of suggest their own ideas and suggest corrections to Fenon. So one thing you see is people writing. When, when, when Sue was publishing uh, Le Mystère de Paris, um, readers would write in kind of correcting um, things that he said about Paris or kind of giving their own examples from their own lives to kind of suggest how he might write his next no- uh, his next installments differently. Similarly, people write to Renan saying, you know, I think you've got this bit of the life of Jesus wrong. I've done my own reading or I've been thinking about Jesus for my whole life and I've come to these conclusions. And they do kind of suggest corrections and alterations. So in some ways, what's interesting is actually the compatibility of this kind of reader correspondence with the kind of reader correspondence of, of novelists that other people have examined. I want to come back to to uh, sort of an issue that we've touched on a little bit uh, here and there already, which is the interaction um, between religion and politics in this period in France. And to ask you how you see the book the analysis here of author, text, and reception sort of together, uh, illuminating our understanding of the interaction of, of religion and politics in this period. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, for that, I think the the, for the relevant frame is the kind of the longer history of the reception, so right through from the 1860s to the 1900s. And one of the ways that Renan's book has predominantly been written about is as a kind of inevitable instalment in a particular conflict between uh, between church and state, between a kind of positivist intelligentsia and a, and a kind of Catholic elite, or or between uh, you know what's sometimes called the the culture wars of the of the late nineteenth century, and and that's often one of the frames that Renan's book has been put into. Mm-hmm. What I want to suggest is that when we look at the text and its reception, and, and to some extent its authorship. It's actually what it illustrates are, are, is more often the kind of shifting sands of, polit- of the interaction between politics and religion in this period. So in 1863, at the point that this book is published, one of the big causes in, in, in religious politics or in French politics, in fact, is, is about A, the influence of the church over the government, uh, and B, freedom of expression, freedom of thought, um, under the Second Empire, which is to, to some extent a repressive political regime. And so in that context, I would argue, um, Vichy's had a particular kind of totemic power mm. as this challenge to a religious establishment, which was also a kind of icon of free expression. And what's interesting when you look very closely at the reception is that many of those people, liberals, republicans, free thinkers, who you would expect to be the kind of typical favourable audience for a book, which seems to be an assault on the Catholic Church, were not really that impressed. They thought the book was a little bit dilettantish, they thought it was a little bit romantic, um, or they thought it was too much. You know, n- nobody was really happy with it on that side of the political spectrum when it came out, which is a somewhat surprising conclusion. And yet, once the Catholic opposition kicks in, once you have people like uh, the Cardinal Bonchos making speeches saying that the book should be banned um, in the Senate, suddenly you get this big liberal reaction of, of writers, um, journalists coming to the defense of Renan. Similarly, when, when uh, Renan loses his job at the Collège de France, you have a big groundswell of people coming to his defense. And so the book becomes iconic, um, but it isn't immediately iconic in that 1860s context. And there, the debate is about freedom of thought, freedom of conscience. And then, just to pursue, if I made this kind of longer mm-hmm. um, history a bit, then I would say in the 1870s and 80s, once you get the establishment of a republic in France, and in the 1880s and 90s, an increasingly secular and increasingly uh, positivistic um, elite ruling that republic, Renan's Life of Jesus actually sort of falls out of favour, in part because Renan was not the most dedicated Republican or even particularly Democratic, and in part, I think, because that kind of slightly hybrid romantic mood that the book had no longer seemed to be that kind of cutting-edge, avant-garde. It didn't seem to be the kind of, you know, 
um, leading line of, of, of secular criticism in that, in that period. So you have people like Emil Zola, a dedicated Republican and, and to some extent opponent of the Catholic Church saying, we need to leave Renan behind. You know, he's, what he was doing was just kind of this floral bouquet of, of <laughs> pseudo religious writing for, that made women faint. You know, that's what Zola says basically almost explicitly in those terms that he was basically, you know, he was writing for women. And what we need is something more kind of muscular and aggressively scientific. Um, so actually, Renan kind of falls out of favour for a bit. And then when it gets to uh, after Renan's death in 1892 and towards the separation of church and state, which happens in France in 1905, Life of Jesus comes back. And that's for very specific reasons um, that have to do with the particular politics and the particular symbolic position of Brittany within the contest over the relationship between church and state um, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, and the way in which um, unveiling a statue to Renan becomes a kind of lightning rod for many of the debates in French culture in in that period, 1903-1904. So I guess, you know, what I'm saying is that the, the history of the relationship between politics and religion in relation to the reading of Renan's book is a history of change and of reading and rereading and the book being read in different contexts in different ways um you we've also we've already touched on uh the idea that gender you know may have played a role in the authorship of the the Vidu jesus and in the in the text itself and we've mentioned that you know some of the people who wrote to Renan about the book were women could you say a little bit more rob about how what other ways or more about the ways we've already touched on that that gender figures in the book your book. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think what I've tried to do and, and people will judge whether I've been successful or not is to, is that the whole analysis is gendered because I think that the whole debate was deeply gendered. And, and one of the most prominent ways that that happened that we haven't mentioned yet is to do with this idea of Renan's book as novelistic. And that ties again into the history of the book and history of reading in this period. So in the middle of the 19th century, with the expansion of literacy, you had this this idea of, on the one hand, you had the idea of new readers, that is people like women, the working classes, um, provincial readers, the idea of people who were kind of uninitiated in reading. And authorities, both religious and non-religious, were very concerned about this group of people. Were they ready to read? Could they be trusted to read? Could you leave them with a text like like Life of Jesus and, and trust them to interpret it sensibly and properly? And on the other hand, you have this particularly Catholic concern with the idea of the um, the mauvais livre, the bad book, the kind of the dangerous book. Um, and the mauvais livre is usually in, imagined as being a kind of scandalous novel, you, know, you could think of something like Madame Bovary or whatever, you know, the, the idea of something that might corrupt your morals. But it's also could be an intellectual book. It could be Voltaire or whatever. And so Renan's book, uh, I'm sorry, I should say that that fear about the mauvais livre is profoundly gendered. It's about particularly a concern about what women are reading. And that's how it dovetails with this idea of the fear about new readers. So there's this deep concern that novels appeal particularly to women and novels can be particularly dangerous and encode particularly dangerous messages and women will be particularly susceptible to them because they're in novels. Now, when Renan releases his book, which is in some ways deliberately novelistic or novelesque, um, Catholic authorities immediately perceive this and they, and they recognize that this is a book which is written just like those terrible novels that we've been trying to stop women reading. And in fact, the message it encodes is even more dangerous than mm. something about, you know, adultery or whatever, because it's actually an attack on the very foundation of society, which is religion. And so you can see particularly um, in the Catholic pamphlet literature and in what priests say in the period that they're explicitly concerned um, with the fear that women will read this book and will mm. be particularly susceptible to Renan's message. It's really fascinating. Another thing you you talk about in the book, Rob, is this idea that it tells us something about ideas about race in 19th century France. Could you say a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, well, Renan's analysis of, of race uh, has been probably along with, with what is a nation has mm -hmm. been the area of his career, which has attracted the most attention in the late 20th century. Um, 
particularly because um, it was treated in Orientalism and it has been treated in a lot of other very important books on, on the history of racial thought. Um, Svetan Todorov, Maurice Hollander, um, and Edward Said. So Renan, it's well known that Renan's, um, Renan's views on race are very complex um, and also very central to his analysis. Um, and so I say in the early part of the book that one of the problems on an intellectual level and on a personal level that Renan was trying to resolve in the early part of his life was how was it that Jesus could be both a Jew and a Christian? You know, that's, and it's a kind of, that's not a new problem, right? Um, but for Renan, that's particularly problematic because in his philological work in the 1850s, he developed this increasingly rigid separation of Semitic languages from Indo-European languages. And because for Renan, uh, language structured the way you thought and language structured the type of culture you developed, that meant that there was a certain kind of um, incommensurability between what he would think of as a Semitic culture and what he would think of as a European culture. And so the big problem for him is that Christianity is the European religion par excellence in his view, and yet comes from the Semitic mind, which in his view is very limited. For example, he thinks that um, certain rigid features of Semitic languages like Hebrew somehow structure the thought processes of the people who speak those languages in order to make them less um, poetic, less nature-loving, less capable of kind of complex rational thought in some way. I mean, his the statements on on the determinant role of language are very varied. At some points, he seems to be suggesting that, you know, it kind of pretty much determines absolutely everything that you think. And at other points, he's completely blasé about it and says, oh, it doesn't really matter. But there's certainly some strong idea in this early part of his career that language is determinant of culture and thought. Um, so um, Maurice Hollander has said that, that basically he kind of creates this kind of escape shoot for, for Jesus, where Jesus can be European despite being a Jew, in order to make that work. And so the way that he does this is by setting up this incredibly stark contrast between Galilee, which for Renan is the kind of northern, fertile, green, and basically the subtext is European part of the region. And Jerusalem, Judea is the kind of barren, dry, and the subtext is, you know, Eastern Jewish part of the region. And Jesus comes from one and not the other. And of course, it's no coincidence that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, that's where he ends up getting into trouble. Um, so Renan, in a sense, uses geography to kind of bypass the pickle that he gets himself in over race. Mm. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the book is where does he get that from? And he draws quite a lot, I think, on on nineteenth um, century ge- geographical thinking, because much as racial scientists wanted to say everything was about race, ge- geographers in nineteenth century had often, uh, particularly in the case of someone like Karl Ritter, a German geographer who who Renan read a lot, want to say that geography determines everything. And so Renan can sort of use one to break open the other and turn Jesus into this kind of pseudo-European, pseudo-Semitic creature who will some way kind of bypass that problem. You make the point, uh, I think it might be in the introduction, Rob, where you talk about um, the worthwhile research that there is to be done and the international reception of Renan's text, and some of that has already been done in some of the existing scholarship, but that that this is a national, that your own book is a, is a national narrative mm. of the work as, as, a, as a French text and in the, within the French context and the debates uh, in, in which it appeared. So I guess I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about how the book was received uh, outside of France, but also a little more about the, the France that you're dealing with here. A lot of the book is focused on Paris, but you talk about the regions and, well, where... Renan is from, certainly, and, you know, in terms of the readers responding to the text, other parts of the country are represented. So could you say a little bit more about about those issues? Yeah, sure. Um, Yes, there's definitely a really interesting book or or something to be written on the international reception of of Renan that would would tie together 
the fact that this was a book that was widely read in Latin America, Germany, Britain, uh, France, the US, just in Canada, just to name a few examples, you know, mm. and I'm sure when you trace those debates, you'll find it fitting into those contexts in slightly different ways. Um, you know, I've looked a little bit of, at its reception in, in somewhere like, um, Germany where what Renan is saying about the Bible and about the life of Jesus was not new, it was not original, that Germans had had these big debates over the life of Jesus in intellectual circles, at least already in the 1830s, and indeed, to some extent, um, at the end of the Enlightenment, someone like Lessing um, uh, published these these fragments from a German philosopher called Reimarus, which foreshadowed many of those ideas that you see in texts like Renan. So when Renan arrives in Germany, the intellectual um, elite at least sees it as very French. They you know, they say you know this is exactly what you'd expect. It's dilettantish. It's kind of florid. It's kind of you know impressionistic. It's everything we associate with the problems of France. Um, and that's how the German kind of theological elite receives it. Whether it was received different differently by the German public who had access to it in German very very rapidly uh, is a question which remains to be answered. And I think it would be very interesting to investigate because they might well not have been so familiar with um, the higher criticism of the bible even if they were arguably more familiar with the bible itself than the french audience would have been um in england by contrast i think it became relatively popular and and, and part of its appeal i think was similar to that in france um the reason i say that my analysis is is of it as a french book is because i think that most of the people that i'm looking at view Renan as a French problem. You know, they're French and they see him as posing problems about their own society. Mm. And that ranges from uh, some of those, if you like, ordinary people who write to him, who, who kind of, the way that they talk about his book is incorporating it into a narrative of, of what they see as the threats to faith or alternatively the threats to free thought. Um, in France in that particular period. So they very much see it as a, as a French text. Um, or if you look at the kind of way it gets brought into those politics, you know, the fact it's only in France in 1903 that you can have a riot over a statue of Renan, right? I mean, he was a global uh, figure by that point, but it's only really in that immediate context of Brittany in the 1900s that you could have that happen, I believe. Um, so that's what I mean when I say that it's a French, uh, I treat it as a French problem. And yeah, I've tried to make it not just about Paris, um, which is, I think, what all French historians uh, really want to do. Mm. Um, obviously, we're limited to some extent by the documentation. But one of the great things about the fact that Renan was so uh, widely disseminated is that you can trace him through the provincial press and you can find stories about, for example, the Bishop of Marseille ordering the church bells are rung out every afternoon in penance for the assassination attempt on our saviour. Um, and you can get stories of people getting off the train in the region and being you know, asked by the person, the porter carrying their luggage, what are they saying about Monsieur Renan's book back in Paris? And you can have these kind of different... Um, uh, provincial context as well, where and the Brit Breton one is really the most central in my book. And I have to say, it's not, uh, you know, I, it's not as fully and authentically a pan-French book as I would have liked to have written. But I have hopefully tried at least a little bit to make it a non-Parisian book. Mm -hmm. You explore towards the end of the book, Rob, the legacies of the text into the early twentieth century and. Um, I guess I want to ask you to say a little bit more about legacies and also whether or not you see the book as having anything to do with maybe more current, you know, conversations that for obvious reasons uh, are very urgent around secularism, you know, liste, Frenchness, national identity, those kinds of things. Well, I'll start with the legacy. So the, the legacy, as I say, Renan becomes the center of a controversy again. Um, in the run-up to the separation of church and state. And then, although I haven't traced things, the book ends there. So the book really ends in, in 1903, 1904, mm -hmm. with the erection of, on the one hand, a statue to Renan in his hometown of Treguier, and on the other hand, a calvary that the Catholic Church erects in protest at a statue being erected to Renan <laughs> in Treguier. Yeah. 
have so these kind of two lineups, you know, pro, uh, monument and counter monument. And, you know, the Renan monument faces onto the cathedral. It's very transparent what the Republicans are trying to do here. They're, and people march through the street saying, you know, vive la libre pensée. Uh, my favorite thing that happens, and I can't remember if there's a picture of it in the book or not, is um, the Republicans climb up the church tower and they hang a banner saying, I think, vive la libre pensée, long live free thought. And then a few hours later, Catholics go one step higher up the cathedral tower and hang a kind of raggedy sign that says, vive le Christ, right? Long live Christ. Mm. So they kind of like monument, counter monument, banner, counter banner. Um, you get this very kind of, it's by that point, French politics is very polarized and Anne Renan's book gets sucked into that polarization. After that, I think the book's, controversy and prominence really decline across the 20th century somewhat in tandem with with uh, Renan's own uh, reputation and prominence as, as a thinker and so by today I mean I can't speak for for contemporary French people but it's it's not the most widely read book it has to be said. In terms of contemporary resonances it was really interesting I gave a paper on it to my um, departmental seminar about two weeks after um, the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre, and people were very struck by the images of the luminaries of the Republic lining up on the streets behind this book, which was iconoclastic, right? And there was some kind of loose parallel you could draw to what happened when you know the leaders of the Republic came out on the streets in January, um, you know, to, you know, to say, je suis Charlie, um, mm. uh, you know, this idea that somehow the state was identifying with this icon of controversy. Um, although, of course, the contexts are incredibly different. And I don't really want to draw particularly any grand lesson for um, contemporary um, French secularism from this book, except to say that I think what the book does show, and it's not the only book to show this by any means, is that that whole idea of, of laïcité and that whole idea of, of that kind of clean and natural idea of laïcité, at least, the idea that there's a kind of straightforward um, sense in which we know what that means is is wrong. You know that there's there's always been this kind of contestation, negotiation, dialogue, this kind of messy compromise between church and state, and even the things that you might take as an icon of secularism, which is how life of Jesus was taken on the streets of Brittany in 1903, is itself a very confused and confusing book, which seems on the one hand to um, endorse and eulogize Catholicism and on the other hand to undermine and attack it. I think that messiness of the legacy of Renan's book is indicative of the kind of messiness of the history of laïcité that the historians like uh, Jean Bobereau have, have drawn um, brilliant attention to. Um, and so I think the only real lesson we can take um, for today's politics is, is life is messy. Laïcité is messy. Religion is messy. And the history of the legacy of Renan's book is, is a fine example of quite how messy that is. So we should be careful about jumping to conclusions or thinking that we know what these different concepts mean, mm-hmm. or that certainly that they have straightforward and inevitable histories. So there's just one last question I want to ask you, Rob, which is, what are you working on now? Uh, two things like, at the moment. Um, the One thing I'm looking at is the kind of uh, history, a kind of French intellectual history project, which is about... Um, the ways all of the different historians at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century who interpreted the revolution, the French Revolution, as a religious event. Mm. Um, famously, Tocqueville said that the French Revolution was a political revolution which proceeded in the manner of a religious revolution. I don't think people have really um, fully evaluated the extent to which many 19th century French historians thought that the French Revolution was um, something akin to the Reformation. And so I'm kind of tracing that um, that line of analysis. The other project, which is not French at all, um, is um, draws more on the Jesus side of things, and that is sort of provisionally entitled Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, and it's a history of the Oberammergau Passion Play, which is this passion play in, in Bavaria in Germany, 
which first started in the 16, in the 1630s and continues to the present day every 10 years, but really exploded to international popularity at around the same time um, as Renan was writing in the late 19th century. And so I'm interested in, in how a very different um, story about the life and death of Jesus could become an international spectacle and controversy in the same period. Um, but hopefully, once that's done, if it's ever done, I can uh, get back to France um, uh, completely. But for the, for the meantime, my mind is, is very much in Germany for some reason. I can't really fully figure out. Well, those both sound like really interesting projects. And if one of them emerges in new book form at some point, <laughs> come back and talk to me about it. Rob, I just want to thank you so much for writing the book and for taking the time to speak with me about it. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Roxanne.